A wise man builds his life on Jesus' instructions, like a house built on a solid foundation. By tuning in today, you are pouring into your life. This message is part of the teaching provided by House on the Rock Fellowship, a church caring for the Miami Valley region. Before you listen, be sure to access the notes in the download section of the message page. Have a Bible ready. Thank you for being our guest. Almost six years ago, my mom took all of us, our family, to Disney World. That's in Florida. <laughs> Dramatic pause. <laughs> well, we're from Pennsylvania. We went in January. Now, in January, bodies in Pennsylvania are well into their winter whitening. We kind of take on this beautiful pale hue that we like to call death warmed over. We were supposed to go to Florida, January, from Pennsylvania. So contingencies had to be taken into consideration and tanning had to happen. Uh, yeah, there's a mental picture for you. <laughs> Remember when the dentist says, hey, this is a tanning bed. I'm like, I can see that it's a tanning bed. You lay down on that. I'm like, yeah, not going to happen, kiddo. Not going to happen. You put these little things on your eyeballs. Yeah, definitely not. You had to get hats because we're going to Florida. We had to find SPF 5000 sunscreen so that we had enough layers of protection so that when we went down to Florida, we could enjoy it. We were kept from the heat, the rays, the light, the rays that wanted to do us harm. We needed to respect that. We needed to have enough layers, the right layers. I say that because John the Divine, who wrote the Apocalypse, assumes that you have the right layers on when you come to the Apocalypse. That you have certain levels and layers of protection, of understanding, so that you know what he's doing, why he's doing it. He expects you to know your Old Testament really, really well. He expects you to get the style that he's writing in. If not, if those layers aren't in place, it's very well likely that you will get burned and not read Revelation responsibly. This is very important as we get to chapter 15 and chapter 16. So as a good guide coming alongside of you as we go through these chapters together, I want to give us a couple layers today before we ever get to 15 and 16. So you hopefully you have your notes with you. Take those out and we'll fill those out as we go through uh, our time together. You have a Bible. Nikki's going to have verses come up on the screen behind me to help you as we move through this. But the first layer I want us to have is an understanding of what's called the Exodus in, in your Old Testament. The Exodus is a foundational story. 
And it's something that John plays with and alludes to a lot in Revelation 15 and 16. So in less than five minutes, I'm going to take you through 12 chapters of the book of Exodus. I'm going to go through it quick. This is a little bit of the Charlton Heston cartoon version, but it'll help you understand some things that we're going to get to. Okay, Exodus chapter 3 through 15. God hears the oppressions of his people. He hears the cries of his people. They are under the heavy thumb of a world superpower. There is oppression, there is slavery, there is greed, there's paganism, there's evil forces. It's a nightmare for God's people, and they've cried out to God, and God's heard them. So God sends Moses. Moses goes to Pharaoh, let my people go. No. In fact, your people can start making their bricks without any straw. I'm not letting the people go. God goes, Moses goes back to God and says, hey, won't let them go. Well, Moses, to be perfectly honest, I'm probably going to have to harden Pharaoh's heart through all of this. Go back to Pharaoh, ask him, he says, he needs to let my people go. Moses said, hey, let my people go. Pharaoh's like, no, I don't want to let them go. They're my people. I don't know who your God is. I don't need to listen to him. I'm not letting the people go. What unfolds are these 10 terrible plagues that we're kind of familiar with. The first one, all the waters turned to blood. And it says that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. That he does not take heed to the warnings of God. Frogs come out. And it says that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Gnats come out, and his heart is hardened. Flies come out, and Pharaoh hardens his own heart. All the livestock die, and it says that his heart is hardened. And then you get to the sixth plague, and something shifts in the narrative. Okay? Boils break out all over the Egyptian people. Moses comes to Pharaoh. No, I'm not going to let him go. And it says, the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. Up until this point... Pharaoh hardens his own heart. But when you get to the sixth one, it specifically says, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. There's hail, there's locusts, there's darkness, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Moses comes in and warns him, hey, if you don't listen to the Lord, if you don't take heed, all the firstborn of this empire will die. You have to understand, that's not just about your kid dying. That's about the future of your empire dissolving. The firstborn were the leaders in politics. The firstborns were the leaders in finance, in the economy, in trade. To take away the firstborn is to take away the future of the empire. Pharaoh's like, get out of here. Angel comes through. Firstborn die. Pharaoh kicks them all out. While they are on their way down to the Red Sea, Pharaoh says, hold on a second. What have I done? So Pharaoh musters his entire military force. They go in hot pursuit against the people of God. People of God are down by the Red Sea. Let me read for you the backstory of what's going on as God shares something with Moses. This is in Exodus 14. Exodus 14. I'm going to read verses 16 and 17. The Lord says to Moses, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, talking about the army, so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. 
And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. People go through. Pharaoh and his army goes into the water and judgment comes down upon them and God destroys them. God destroys the evil. God delivers his people and God receives glory and praise. And God's people on the other side sing a song of celebration and a song of victory called the Song of Moses. This is a foundational story as you go through the Old Testament and then as we get into the heart of Revelation 15 and 16. In your notes, I, I want to help you remember a couple of things. The first one is this. Write this down. God will deliver the cosmos from all evil. God will deliver the cosmos from all evil. He's good. He's loving. He's just. Of course he's going to deliver us from all evil. The cosmos is infected. The cosmos is broken. We enslave each other. We suppress each other. We abuse each other. All of creation cries out. If he did not do anything about evil, he would not be good. He would not be loving. He would not be just. But he hasn't done it yet. We are in what we might consider a season of God's grace. In the same way that God was sending Moses to Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. Hey, here's warnings. Hey, here's plagues. Hey, let my people go. Hey, let my people go. And within that season, we have one of two options. Option A, in your notes, write this down. We can come under grace, what we call repentance. We can come under God's grace. Follow his instructions. Align ourselves with God's kingdom. Pharaoh, let us go and worship our God, responding to the warnings and the instructions of God. Warning, warning, warning. Some of us have chosen option A, right? Some of us have chosen option A. I have chosen option A. I've decided in my life I'm going to come underneath God's grace. I'm going to be a follower of King Jesus. I'm going to be a, a participator in his kingdom. I'm going to be a part of the restoration project that God is doing right now. Some of us will choose option B. Option A, come under grace. Option B, overdose. Overdose on our own evil. I want to teach you a consistent sequence that's in the Bible. You can see it on a personal level. You can see it on a national level. And it goes like this. Step one, we harden our hearts. We harden our hearts through intentional disobedience, through intentional willingness, through intentional resistance of God's grace. Our hearts become calloused to sin and we sin more. And we disobey more. And it becomes easier. And it becomes easier. 
our hearts become hardened. Step two, we reach a tipping point where God gives us over to our desires. He gives us up to, in the Old Testament, he hides his face from, is another way that it's put. God lets us have what we want. He gives us over to it. But what we fail to grasp, step three, is that we then self-destruct. We then self-destruct. We harden our hearts to evil. We reach this tipping point of constant willful disobedience where God says, okay, you may have what you want, and it leads to our own self-destruction. This is the sequence. This is the consequence that comes with sin. In the Bible, the image of that is called filling up the cup of God's wrath. Filling up the cup of God's wrath. We choose sin and the death and the destruction that go along with it. And the cup fills up. God gives us ample warnings. God gives us instruction. Grace flows out. Love flows out. But the cup fills up with the hardness of our hearts until it reaches a tipping point where God gives us over to our own self-destruction. Consequence. Why do we struggle with consequences? I mean, if we're parenting kids, we're all about consequences, right? I mean, sometimes we even get a little giddy about it. Oh, consequence. All right, you chose A, here comes B. Like you think about sometimes later, oh, here's a consequence, here's a consequence. Well, we have no problem in understanding the importance of consequence when parenting children. Why do we think that there's a disconnect when we become adults? Like, there's not consequence. If I go eat a Big Mac, and then I go eat a Big Mac, and then I go eat a Big Mac, and then I eat a Big Mac, and I eat a Big Mac, and I eat a Big Mac, my choice, at some point, my body is going to usher in the consequence. Correct? Correct? If I take a drink of beer, and I take a drink of beer, and I hit another beer, and I hit another beer, eventually, I can actually induce alcoholic poisoning. And my body says, we're done. We're done. Yet, why do we struggle as adults so much with the reality that our choices, spiritual choices, have spiritual consequences? Our physical choices have physical consequences. Our relational choices have relational consequences. Let me illustrate it this way. You just got a new job down in Dayton and you're looking for an apartment that's a little closer to work and you check through the newspaper. Hey, sure enough, Jesus has a flat that he'd like to rent with you. Jesus would like to be your roommate. 
Hey, Jesus, I hear you're renting some space. Yeah, absolutely. Got some space. I'd love for you to come and join me in my apartment. We'll be roommates. You go to work, I'll go to work, and we'll be roommates together in this flat. Awesome. You move in, and you realize that God has already, Jesus has already gone through and put Mr. Yuck stickers on everything where there needs to be Mr. Yuck stickers. How many of you remember Mr. Yuck stickers, right? First grade, second grade, you get these little stickers. That, hey, take this home, put this on all your poisonous stuff so you don't drink it. And you, go, you put these stickers on things, right? So Jesus has gone through and labeled everything that is bad for me. It's very thoughtful, right? But you start poking around a little bit. And like, really? Is it? I mean, it smells good. Tastes kind of good too. Jesus is like, which I said, don't don't drink that. <laughs> Prude. That's good. That's good. And Jesus is like, why are you doing that? I specifically said that's not good. Like, oh, silly. It's my choice. It's my life. It's mine. It's mine. Why are you telling me what to do? After I keep hitting that and hitting that and hitting that, why would I then be surprised or should I be surprised that I won't experience the consequence of those choices? Is it because God is a jerk? Is it because God is a holier-than-thou, angry old man who wants to zap me? Is that why I'm experiencing this? Why am I experiencing this overflow of wrath? That's what flows out of the cup when that's when you put in the cup. When God pours out his wrath in the Bible, that means... He's letting us experience the consequence of our decision. He gives us over to our desires and the destruction that comes with it. Let me apply that through another filter. Uh, biggest chapter in the Bible that talks about God's wrath. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And what I, I hope prayerfully can help you see is it follows the same sequence. When we talk about wrath... There is this sequence, okay? God will deliver from all evil. He will do it. And we enter into this, we're in the season of grace and repentance. And we can choose option A, you can choose option B, your own self-destruction. Which means as I choose, as I choose to harden my heart to sin, God gives me over to that and then I self-destruct. Okay? Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, goes like this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay, the wrath of God is revealed. Okay, if I want to see the wrath of God, then I'm going to see it in what happens in the following sequence. It's revealed against what? All ungodliness and all unrighteousness. God will deliver the world from evil, okay? Starting in verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. God has shown it to them. 
His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Okay, so we're in that season of grace. We're in the season of repentance. God makes himself known. He does it through creation. He does it through his prophets. He does it through his children. He does it through graces in many shapes and sizes. God makes himself known. Respond, come to, come under grace. Come under grace. There's option A, there's option B. But they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They've chosen option B. Hearts are hardened. Hearts are callous to sin. They pursue sin. Thinking becomes futile. Passions become demented. Hearts become darkened. As they don't choose the glory of God, and if you go through the book of Romans, that idea of glory is the glory that we share with God for being his image bearers. We walk alongside God as co-rulers on this earth. A beautiful gift. But we've resisted that and we choose the created thing instead of the creator. What happens if I keep hardening my heart and hardening my heart and hardening my heart? Eventually, God is going to let me have my desires. Verse 24, Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips and slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Dramatic pause. Foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die they not only do them, they give approval to those who practice them. Tipping point. Tipping point. Three times, and God gave them up, and God gave them up, and God gave them up. You wanted this, there you go. You wanted this, there you go. You wanted this, there you go. God has placed upon us a sovereign responsibility to rule with the moral ethic in this world. God has not removed that from us. You have free choice. You may choose your course. 
that my heart becomes hardened and my heart becomes hardened. I receive in my body the due penalty for my choices. Verse 27. God's wrath is less about what God does and more about what God doesn't do. He lets go. He doesn't protect. Sustain. Grace. He gives us what we want. A life on our terms. Chasing our lies. Ignoring the warnings. Going around and slapping unicorn stickers over Mr. Yuck so we feel better about the labels. Does it change what's inside the bottle? Does it change the effects of the bottle? We'll just call it something else. It makes us feel better. You need to understand and be mindful of that sequence. Because in the biblical narrative, you see this sequence on an individual level. You can read about it on a corporate level. You can read about it on a national level. Nationally, God sends warning after warning after warning after warning. Nations hardening their hearts. God's own people hardening their hearts until such a time that the cup is filled and they are given over to the consequences of their choices. In 15 and 16 of Revelation, we're going to see it at a cosmic level where God does this on a cosmic level. Turn there with me. Revelation 15 and 16. It's the first thing we wrote down. God will deliver us from all evil. God will deliver the cosmos from all evil. How do you end the Jesus prayer? And rescue us from all evil. This is the answer to that prayer. This is what that looks like. We have been in and are in a season of grace and repentance. Even from the very beginning of our series and study through the book of Revelation, uh, God has showed a symbol upon symbol, image of that repentance. Let me just read one of them for you that goes all the way back to the beginning of our study. This is from Revelation 14, starting in verse 6. I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth. Those who dwell on earth is John's way of saying those who are not followers of Jesus. They have not chosen option A. To every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God, give him glory. The hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Verse 9, and another angel, a third, followed them saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image, receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he also will 
drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Again and again, warning comes out. And John shows it and paints it and communicates it in various ways. The message goes out to all nations, all tribes, all tongues. Repent. It's an eternal gospel. It's an eternal gospel. Do not follow the beast. Follow the king of kings. You do not want to drink the cup of God's wrath. We're now reached the point, if you do want to look at the book of Revelation as an eschatological calendar, here is a date for you. There is coming a moment in future, history to come, where God will deliver us from all evil. When God does say, it is done. When the cup reaches its brim and God says, no more suffering. No more injustice. Revelation 15. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them, the wrath of God is finished. That word finished means payment is due. There is now time and obligation must come. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God. Remember, we have the Exodus and you have the Exodus in our thinking. God's victorious people coming through the Red Sea on the other side, singing songs of victory. Because God had laid waste to the evil empires. What are they singing? Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. This is God's throne room. It's presented like a temple. Out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Okay, so the cup is filled up. It's now going to be poured out in seven ways upon the earth. Now notice it says the sanctuary is closed. That means no prayers are coming in. No repentance is coming in. We've entered that time, that moment, when God will deliver his cosmos from evil. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. 
harmful and painful sores came up upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse. Every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water. They became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters saying, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. And you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Notice, repeated now. He wants us to remember God is just, God is holy, God is true. And you see that. It says, they have shed blood and you have given them blood to drink. You put blood into the cup, you've gotten blood back. You've poured in oppression, you've poured in suffering, you've poured in hardship, and now it's poured back upon you. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, almighty, true and just are your judgments. Before in chapter six, uh, the altar, the voice of the faithful witnesses, the martyr said, God, how much longer, how much longer will you let evil rule and reign? And the voice said, a little bit longer, a little bit longer. We have now reached that place where God has said it is done. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch the people with fire for they were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues and they did not repent and give him glory. Like the other sequences of seven in the book of Revelation, the first four go together. And if you kind of look at them, you see a theme. They're ecological judgments. Earth is responding the seas, the rivers of fresh water, the sun. Do you understand that humanity has trashed the earth? You get that? We've trashed it. He's brought us in as a good roommate. And we have laid waste to it. We just take garbage and we stick it in the earth. And then we just cover it over. I mean, if that's not symbolic of real issue, I don't know what is. We take, in, we take industrial waste and we just pour it in the water. We are learning every single day the results of pollution. That the sun and its deadly rays are having an ever-increasing deadly effect upon us. Isn't it interesting? 2,000 years ago, John says, judgment comes from the earth and you did it to yourselves. The judgment comes on the people in the first four. Evil people, those who have not followed. Those who have not, and isn't it interesting? He, he, he repeats it. He says, they cursed the name of God. They did not repent. Like everything gets bad and God, it's your fault. Everything is, God, this is terrible and I'm blaming you. This is your fault. God, how could you do this to us? I thought you were loving. I thought you were gracious. I thought you were kind. But God will deliver the earth from evil. 
The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. First four poured out on people. Now it's directed towards the beast. Those imperial systems of oppression and slavery, military might and conquering. Its kingdom was plunged into darkness. Have Exodus in the back of your mind. People nod their tongues in anguish. Curse the God of heaven for their pain and their sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth plague was poured out. His bowl on the great river Euphrates. If you remember, I tried to help you understand. In Roman thinking, the Euphrates is the far eastern border. It's a line of protection that keeps the eastern empires from coming in upon them. There was actually a prophecy in this time that a reincarnation of Nero would lead the evil kings back upon Rome. And so John might be playing with that idea a little bit. He's saying judgment is now coming from that which you fear most. And I saw coming, listen to this, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. These are symbols that we talked about earlier. This is the unholy trinity. Dragon, beast, false prophet. The opposite of father, son, holy spirit. And they unleash a propaganda machine to gather all evil together. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And all of a sudden, John pulls us back and says, hey, pay attention. Hey, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that they may not go about naked and be exposed. And he gets back into it. They assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Okay, this is, this is less about a big army and a big eternal war that's going to be waged. When evil takes on God, do you think it's going to last long? No, what he's communicating is that all of evil is gathered together. It's now come together on a global scale. The Armageddon is a challenge in translation because we don't even know how to spell it in Hebrew. There's multiple translations that are out there, and we really don't even know where it is. Some people said, well, maybe he's referring to Mount Megiddo, which is a plain off of Mount Carmel, but we don't really know for sure. Okay, that's treating it like a code. Understand it as a symbol. The idea of unified evil behind a propaganda machine getting all evil together has amassed. Previously, between number six and number seven, John would pull us back, help us catch our breath, and then he'd bring us into another image. But as you can see now, the seventh has come. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. The air is understood to be where the demonic forces are. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it's done. Look at that verse again. Where does this judgment come from directly? It comes from the temple, from the throne, saying, it's done. There were flashes of lightning, rumbling and peals of thunder, a great earthquake such as there had never been seen since man was on the earth, so great was the earthquake. Remember I said earthquake is a way of understanding that God is now coming from heaven's space into our space. And he is coming down now in such a way that he has never been shown up before. And the great city was split into three parts. 
the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away. No mountains were to be found. Great hailstones, 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. They drink their own destruction, self-destruction. I mean, if we have our filters right, if we have our layers on correctly, if we've worked our way through the biblical narrative, the wrath of God is less God, an angry potentate dictator with his little lightning bolt ready to zap the fun out of us. The wrath of God is God saying, here are the consequences of your actions. You conquered and now you're conquered. You chose slavery and enslavement. Chapter 17 and chapter 18, get into the specifics of what's in the cup that's being poured out. And we'll, we'll look at that another time. But why don't we pull back a little bit and just catch our breath, shake out the wiggles, and let's think about something. What, what, what does this remind us? What does this tell us? What do we need to recall? I think the one is this. We need to remember that God always comes with love first. God always comes with love. In Ezekiel 33, verse 11. Ezekiel 33, verse 11. This is God talking directly to his covenant people, Israel. A people that again and again God has warned and nurtured and cared for, but again and again turned away from God. And they'd reached that tipping point. In Ezekiel 33, verse 11, God is saying this through the prophet. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Turn. Repent. Do it now. Stop filling up the cup. That will be poured upon you your own self-destruction. I think that's why one of the reasons that John pulls back a little bit in John chapter in, in chapter 16 there. He does that whole piece about the army and arm against us. Hey, 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 don't forget. I'm coming like a thief in the night. You don't know when I'm coming. Be ready. Be mindful. Be faithful. But God comes with love. God comes with grace. We just push it away. And then call God a jerk. But let me show you something else that I, I want you to walk away with. This is in Luke 22. Luke 22. Luke 22, verse 42. Maybe a verse that you've read lots and lots of times, but maybe never stop to think about one particular element, which is eternally important. Luke 22, Jesus is in the garden. This is before his crucifixion. This is a night of prayer. This is after the Last Supper. He falls on his knees and he says this, Luke 22, verse 42. Father, if you are willing, 
remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Whose cup is it? Is it Jesus' cup? Whose cup is he being given? It's my cup. It's my cup. What's in the cup? It's all the oppression and the sinfulness and the brokenness and the disobedience that I have leveraged against his good creation, against myself, against others, against his world. This is the cup he carries. This is the cup that he's given. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So when he goes to the cross, it's the beautiful expression of God's love. That he did not want the wicked to perish. He did not want the wicked to die, but to turn. But the cup must go somewhere. And so Jesus takes my cup upon himself. Don't you dare call my Jesus a jerk. We bring it upon ourselves. So where is your cup? What is in your cup? Do you want to drink it down? As you look back over the years, the suffering and the brokenness that you've leveraged in this world. What a gift of God's grace to say, I'll take that. You, you don't need to drink that poison. our artists to come up, please. I chose option A. Have you chosen option A? Walk and come underneath God's grace and his love. If you find yourself still holding on to the cup, I pray that you would give that over to Jesus and receive the love and the grace that he alone gives. As the artists play a song for us, maybe a little bit later we'll sing in. Let's think about his goodness and his grace. If you are still holding on to your cup, give it over to Jesus. Father God, I ask that you in this moment would lead us in this time of repentance and grace. We would take sin seriously. You take it seriously. We would take consequence seriously. You take it seriously. You're good and you're loving and you're just. You don't want to punish the wicked. 
would you help us now turn? Give that cup to you. Jesus said there are two ways to build your life. A wise man builds his life on God's instructions, like a house on a strong foundation. For more teaching from this ministry, go to whoishouseontherock.com. If you don't have a church, please consider being our guest on a Sunday morning. Again, visit whoishouseontherock.com for more information.